And it's great to have you with us. Great to have you with us if you're in the room here with us or whether you're online with us. It's wonderful to have you all today. Uh, This is the last part of a three-part series that we've been doing over the last few weeks about heaven. And uh, it's been a challenging one. I'm I'm not going to lie. It's been challenging to put together to research all of that kind of stuff. But such an important subject because, you know what, your perspective on heaven impacts how you live on earth. Whatever your perspective is, you say, look, I'm a total atheist, don't believe anything about the afterlife at all. Well, that impacts how you live today. If you're a Christian, you think, yes, there is a a heaven, it's coming, that impacts how you live today. If you're unsure or ambivalent, that impacts how you live today. And through this series, we started off by talking about uh, uh, why it matters what we think about heaven. And then we've been talking, we were talking last week about what heaven is going to be like. And today we're talking about, well, if that's what heaven's going to be like, a very logical next question, which is, well, who gets to go there? Who gets to go there? And it's been our hope that whether you would say you're a Christian or not, this series has been helpful to you. If you're a Christian, if you're a Jesus follower, that it's been helpful to you because it gives you, I hope, an opportunity to dig around a little bit more into what this heaven thing that we talk about a lot is actually going to be like. Maybe it's blown away some of the things that you thought about heaven, even if you're a Christian. And if you're not a Christian, if you're exploring faith, if you're exploring who Jesus is and what Jesus had to say and all of that kind of stuff, well, I hope that it's been really helpful to you to give you an idea of kind of what Christians think about heaven or what we think is coming next and the hope that it offers. A really important part of exploring what the Christian faith is all about. So today when we're talking about, well, who goes to heaven then, we're talking about, well, who gets to make the cut? And I wonder if you've ever thought about places or situations you're in where there is a condition for entry. Uh, Many years ago, before I became a church leader, I used to do a lot of flying on uh, aeroplanes for business and stuff like that. And uh, the companies that I worked for usually had deals with British Airways. And it meant that that's who we had to fly with as many times as we could whenever we were going somewhere. And I did a a contract in Scotland for nine months, flying up on a Monday and flying back on a Thursday. So I did a lot of air miles. And uh, I remember so vividly the day when in the post came a letter from British Airways. And it said, we're delighted to tell you, Mr. Porter, that you have been upgraded to silver frequent flyer membership. I mean, this was a big moment because silver frequent flyer membership meant you could get in the lounges at the airports, even if you were flying economy, which was the case. It meant you could check in at any check-in desk apart from first class. So all the business class check-in desks where there was never a queue, you could go there and check in. I'd made the cut I was in the silver membership of the Frequent Flyer program. I remember, too, the day about six months into my time at Bible College training to be a church leader, which, by the way, involved no frequent flying at all, when a letter came from British Airways to say, Dear Mr. Porter, we're disappointed to have to tell you that you've been downgraded to blue membership. And I thought, this is real now. I've really given stuff up now. I've made huge sacrifices for the sake of what God is calling me to. felt very real that day. 
Last October, I uh, went off to the US for a conference, and I was flying with some friends of mine. We were flying economy. I want to make this point very clear. But one of my friends isn't in blue or silver. He is gold. He is in gold membership at British Airways. That means you and the people traveling with you can check in at first class. Like, this is a whole world that most of us never know exists. If you've been to Terminal 5 at Heathrow Airport, I'm looking around, by the way, to see people who are nodding because they know about this, thinking you should be giving more to the church. But anyway, that's, <laughs> that's uh, a slight aside. Uh, <laughs> is that okay to say that? I don't know. Anyway, right. Uh, that's one of those things that pops into my mind that isn't in my talk script that makes everybody nervous around here. But anyway... At the end, at one of the ends of Terminal 5 at Heathrow Airport is the BA first class check-in zone. It's like another world. It's like screened off from the rest of ordinary humankind. And as you go in, it's unbelievable. There's a concierge who is there to take you to your check-in desk. There's no queue or anything like that. There's a person there with a tray of champagne glasses as you go into first class. It's unbelievable. And then you don't have to go and queue up with the rest of humankind at the security things to have your bag scanned. Oh, no, they have their own, it turns out. So once you've checked in, you then take your glass of champagne and you go through your own security checks before you have to mingle with the rest of the population in the departure lounge. But of course, you can go to the British Airways departure lounge and have all the free food and drink you like. It's amazing. And I made the cut to that, probably for the one and only time in my life, because of my friend who I was traveling with. I made the cut. I wonder if you can think about things in your own life where there has been conditions for entry or where you've had to make the cut. I was asking around the office this week for some examples. We were asking on the live chat this morning and one or two people have joined in to tell us about things where there are conditions of entry before you make the cut. We were talking on the chat and in the office this week about fairground rides. Like we used to take our kids to Legoland when they were little and, uh, and the day the day came where one of them was tall enough to get on the log flume and one of them still wasn't. That was a tough day in our house. There was a condition for entry. And I was talking around the office with somebody, I won't tell who it, who it was because uh, they're involved with leading the kids' work at uh, our church. But they were talking about putting their kids in high, like the biggest heeled shoes that they've got so that they could get onto the ride and then realizing there's probably a very good reason why they're not allowed on the ride until they're that height. We always used to say, stand on your tiptoes when you're being measured, but they, presumably that means they can like, fall out under the barrier or something like that. So there are conditions for entry for things like that. Think about movies. You know, if you go and see a film, they have certificates on them for age ranges for that, that condition of entry. Think about university grades or college grades or exam grades. Think about driver's licenses. Can you remember, if you can some of you can remember that far back to when you were 17 and you could drive for the very first time. There was that magical moment. We were talking on the chat with Charlotte before about whether uh, on your 17th birthday you had your first driving lesson or somebody took you out because that was the day when you'd made the cut. How do you feel when you make the cut, when you pass the conditions for entry? It's an amazing feeling, isn't it? And how many times have you felt bad because you haven't made the cut, or you haven't made the condition for entry. I realized the other day, every time I go and get a plane now, 
I'm always going to wistfully look at the first-class section and think, I was there once, probably never again. When it comes to heaven, then, what are the conditions for entry? Who makes the cut? On what basis do people make it there? I think if we went out into the street and asked people, how do you think people get to heaven? If you believe in heaven, or even if you don't, just suspend your disbelief for a moment. How do people get to heaven? I think most people would say it has something to do with being good. Good people get to go to heaven. And to begin with, I think, at the very least, that seems fair. It may seem consistent. It it seems consistent with the idea of a good God. If there is a good God who creates a good heaven, well, wouldn't a good God populate heaven with good people? And the other thing that's really attractive about that idea of good people get to go to heaven is because we'd get to go there, wouldn't we? Because I think most of us think we're good people. So I think we kind of think, I like that idea because I'm a good person, so I'll get to go there. I'm a good person, especially compared to fill in the blank especially compared to whoever. But I think there are some problems with this idea that good people go to heaven. Firstly, because good is a moving target. I mean, think about, just think about historically and culturally, good is a moving target. Because what we think of as good now maybe a thousand years ago, was considered not good, or, or maybe something that was considered good a thousand years ago, we'd consider evil now. Think about our cultures as well. Think about different cultures around the world. And what one culture thinks is good, another culture may well not think is good at all. So which definition of good then are we going to go for? And then think about ourselves. We change. What I thought was okay, or maybe even good, 10, 20 years ago, I may not think it's so good now, or vice versa. So historically, culturally, and in ourselves, we change. So which definition of good are we going to go for? And if good people get to go to heaven, who's defining good? Because, you know, there is no consistent human understanding of what is good. And the truth is, If we talk about good people getting to go to heaven, we usually want to be the definers of what's good. Because that makes sure we can get there, and it makes sure the people that we like can get there. And what about this? How good is good enough? But if we get to be the arbiters of what's good and what's good enough, then the people we like get to go to heaven, and the people we don't like don't. Maybe that feels comfortable to us. You know, Jesus and his friends had a completely different way of talking about who gets to go to heaven and who doesn't. Because, you know, there are all those problems with this idea that, well, good people get to go to heaven. Who gets to define what good is? Who's the arbiter of that? All that sort of stuff. Jesus and his friends had a completely different way to talk about who makes the cut. They had a completely different way of talking about what the conditions of entry into heaven are. And they spoke about that in a context where the definers of good and the definers of what was good enough to get into heaven were religious laws and religious rituals. And so into that culture, Jesus and his friends talked about something completely different, and it was totally shocking because it broke the norm of what people thought was good for good enough sake to get into heaven. 
And one of Jesus' friends was a guy called Paul, and we've talked about him a few times during this series. Paul became a Jesus follower out of being one of those religious people who believed they knew what good enough was to get into heaven, and that was by following religious laws and rituals. And Paul did that better than anybody else. And then Paul has this amazing encounter with Jesus. You know, if ever there was a religiously righteous man, Paul was it. But having had this amazing encounter with God, this amazing encounter with Jesus, he changed dramatically. And he wrote a bunch of letters that are in the New Testament part of the Bible. And in one of them, he wrote to a church in Rome that he was very familiar with. And he wrote a whole section about how the religious laws and the religious rituals don't help when it comes to who does or doesn't get to go to heaven. In fact, Paul is saying those religious laws and those religious rituals just show us how far short most of us are when it comes to keeping the rules that people thought was what was going to get them into heaven. And in Romans chapter 3, this is a few verses that Paul writes about this idea. He says, as it is written, there is no one righteous, no one good, not even one. There is no one who understands. There is no one who seeks God. No one. Paul says, no one, no one, no one. There's no one, including us. No one, Paul says, including me. And the reality of all of that is it's because we all mess up. Paul knew this. We all mess up. We're never perfect. None of us could say that. So Paul is saying there is nobody perfectly righteous, there is nobody perfectly good, there is no one who completely understands all that should be done, and there is no one who truly and purely and completely seeks after God. It gets worse in the next verse. All have turned away, they have together become worthless, there is no one who does good, not even one. (laughs) Paul keeps hammering this point home. Nobody is good enough. Nobody is perfectly righteous. So some people would say, if good people get to go to heaven, maybe the Bible is the place to go to, to decide whether good is good enough. But the problem is, if you go to the Bible as your standard for what is good enough to get into heaven, and who's good enough to get into heaven, I've got to be honest with you, it's a really depressing read. Because Paul and others like him say, look, there's nobody, nobody is good enough. If you and I hold our behavior up against the kind of standards that Paul is talking about, then we're in big trouble. And just in case you think this was only Paul, it's not true. Jesus said the same kind of things. Jesus raised the standard of good enough so high that everybody fell short. Jesus' most famous sermon, even if you're not a Christian, you may have heard this, is something called the Sermon on the Mount. And in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus takes religious language, religious laws and rituals and said, you have heard it said, do this, this or this. And then Jesus says, but I say, even if you had a bad thought, or even if you just stepped out of line, Jesus raises the bar higher again. And you know, Jesus talked a lot in that sermon and in other places too, about how we treat people. And Jesus said, you know, you can't claim to love God and treat people badly. That's not how this works. 
Because every human being that's ever lived, every human being that you or I encounter is a child of God and is perfectly loved by God, which is great news for you and I. We are perfectly loved by God as children of God. The bad news is so is everybody else. So when we mistreat another person, even unconsciously mistreat another person, we are falling way short of God's plan, way short of God's agenda, way short of what God would want for us. Jesus says you can't claim to love God and then mistreat people, mistreat a child of God. So Jesus totally redefined the entry conditions for heaven. He raised the bar so high that nobody could make the cut. But one day when he was hanging on a cross, we talked about this in the first part of the series, that day when Jesus was hanging on a cross, he turned to a criminal next to him, a criminal who was getting what he deserved by the cultural standards of the day, a criminal, and said, today you'll be with me in paradise. To get to today, you get to be with me in heaven. And yet throughout his ministry, Jesus had told the religious people, the people who were keeping all the religious laws, that they were nowhere near good enough. <laughs> Can you imagine how shocking that would have been? Hold on. Him? Not me? How does that work? It seems unfair. And maybe when we think about the, the, the kind of bar that Jesus is raising here, those expectations seem too high. That seems unfair. And we go kind of, well, how does anyone get to heaven then? If the bar's up to here, how does anybody reach up to that standard of good? Aren't we all doomed then? That sounds like bad news. But, the, you know, the first followers and friends of Jesus... When they talked about Jesus, they talked about good news. They talked about this word gospel, which means good news. They talked about the gospel of Jesus, the good news of Jesus. Well, hold on. We just talked about bad news for quite a while in this talk this morning. Looked at some bad news kind of text from the Bible. Well, what's this good news thing then? What's this gospel that Jesus talked about and that his friends talked about? Where's the good news here? Well, the bad news about good never being good enough is what makes the good news so good. Because Jesus leveled the playing field and then introduced hope. Jesus answered the question of how good is good enough. And he may be the only person ever who's been able to offer such a clear answer to that question, how good is good enough. Jesus says, well, it's that good, and you get nowhere near that, and uh, I'm not that good, and you're not that good. That's why we all need somebody to rescue us. That's why we don't need another set of rules or regulations. That's why we don't need an 11th commandment or a loophole or a do-over or even an excuse. We need someone or something to rescue us and lift us up and make a way for heaven to be available to us and to enable us to make the cut, to pass the conditions of entry. Let's go back to Paul again, this time to a different letter. This is the Paul, by the way, who even though he'd kept all these religious rules and rituals, he treated people so badly and he called himself the chief among sinners. 
This is the same Paul. But this he says, look at this, in, this is his letter to, second letter to a bunch of people living in Corinth. He says, we implore you, in, in other translations of that word, it could be beg, we beg you or plead with you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God, be reconciled to God. We beg and plead with you, be reconciled to God so you get to spend eternity with God in heaven. Well, how do we do that? Well, Paul goes on. We implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. Hoping, here we go. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us. He's talking about Jesus. Jesus does for us what we can never do for ourselves, even on our very best day. Jesus took his right standing with God and made it available to you and to me. He says, so that in him, that is in Jesus, we might become, here's a really important word, we might become, that's not a word become that implies we need to do anything, not strive for, not work harder for, not earn, become, so that in Jesus we might become the righteousness of God which is a posh way of saying good enough, so that we might become good enough. Not earn our good or work harder or strive for being good enough. No, simply in Jesus, because of what he has done, we might become good enough. So how good is good enough then? Well, according to Paul, and according to Jesus, good people don't go to heaven because there aren't any good people apart from Jesus. Everyone has fallen short. Paul says elsewhere, we have all fallen short of the glory of God. Everybody's fallen short except one, and that is Jesus. Jesus is good enough. And he's taken all of our stuff, all of our mess, all of our mistreatment of other people, all of our rubbish, all of our sin, so we might become people who have a future guarantee of heaven. See, good people don't go to heaven. Forgiven people go to heaven. People who have been rescued and redeemed and saved by the acts of one perfectly good man, Jesus. There is nothing that you or I can do that will put us in right standing with God. There is just a gift to be received. And that gift puts us in right standing with God. And that's how we get to go to heaven. That's how we get to make the cut. That's how the conditions of entry are fulfilled. And all you and I have to do is to receive that gift, to transfer our trust in his sacrificial death. You know, today I find myself with Paul. I beg you, I plead with you, take a look at this stuff. This is the most amazing, incredible, wonderful, brilliant stuff. And it is a free gift. Often around church or around Christian circles, we talk about grace. 
This is the grace of Jesus. This is the gift of God to you and I. And this gift is the promise and guarantee of heaven, a heaven that is waiting for us, a heaven that is being stored up for you and for me. It's there. It's waiting. This place of heaven, as we've talked about in this series, where heaven and earth unite, where people who have died, having received this gift of Jesus, are going to be resurrected into new bodies to spend an eternity in this amazing place that God has prepared for us and has recreated earth in perfection. This place where heaven and earth join, where there are no more tears, no more pain, no more grief, no more suffering, just the perfect place of joy and of celebration and of unity and of togetherness, of perfect relationship with God and with each other, where we will be reunited with the people that we have lost for all of eternity. But you know, God is so good, God is so loving. God is so gracious that he will not force this on anyone. God doesn't force this on you. God says, here's a gift. It's up to you whether you want to receive it or not. Because you know, a loving God doesn't force this on anybody. A loving God offers you a gift and a totally free and undeserved gift. You know, our perspective on heaven impacts how we live on earth. It impacts whether here and now we make a decision to accept that gift, to make that choice, to accept that free gift of grace that is offered to us from God. And for some of us, that might mean accepting it for the very first time. We've never accepted it before. Well, today's a great day to accept that gift for the very first time guarantee of heaven that you will make the cut but for some of us maybe we've accepted that gift before but you know that doesn't stop us accepting it again and again and again and again you know living in the light of heaven stirs hope within us living in the light of heaven should Take us to a place where we are thankful and grateful to what God has done and what Jesus offers. Living with that guarantee of heaven means that every day we can wake up saying, thank you, God, I receive again the gift of Jesus. I know I'm not good enough, but I know Jesus is. Good people don't go to heaven. Forgiven people go to heaven. And every day, we can receive that forgiveness from God.